Today, we are addressing our dependency on Russian oil. And let's be clear, it will not be easy because some member states are strongly dependent on Russian oil. But we simply have to do it. Since Russia invaded Ukraine, the EU slapped unprecedented sanctions on a range of Russian banks, businesses and individuals. The aim, as we established last week, is to rob Russia of the resources to conduct the war and isolate its leadership. There is one area, though, that the EU has been quite hesitant to touch. As they're finally beginning to mull over sanctioning the oil and gas, we'll be looking at why it's taken so long and what it means to the EU. Welcome to Undercurrents, War in Ukraine, a special edition of Chatham House's podcast looking at the far-reaching impacts of war. I'm Ned Sedgwick. I want to first understand how reliant the EU actually is on Russian oil and gas. My name is Helene von Bismarck. I'm a historian from Hamburg in Germany. Helena says that whether the EU can survive without Russian oil and gas depends on what state you're talking about. Well, surviving, um, it's true that the EU is very much dependent on gas imports from Russia. In 2021, so the year before the war in Ukraine started, 40% of gas used in the European Union came from Russia. I mean, that is very significant. But there are also vast differences within the EU. So some countries depend on Russia to an enormous degree. Bulgaria They are actually hugely dependent on Russian gas, whereas there are other countries within the EU who are not, such as Ireland, or much less dependent, such as Spain. Are we still seeing a different attitude towards Russia within these EU states? Are we still seeing some EU states trying to mollify Russia or trying to kind of wind back from the harshest sanctions or wind back from weaning themselves off dependency? Well, since the war in Ukraine started, there have been attempts all over the European Union to decrease the very significant dependence on Russian gas imports and also oil imports. And you have different countries following different policies and trying to get alternative sources. So, for example, Italy has struck deals with Algeria and Angola. And Denmark is now hugely investing in wind, in energy. So different countries have different approaches to find new sources. But what they have in common is that that they want to reduce dependency, with the possible exception of Hungary. But where you see pretty significant differences is how fast they want to do it and also how they position themselves with regard to a real embargo, to cutting off supplies from Russia, coal, oil and gas. And in the last few weeks, what became apparent is that many member states support at least an oil embargo. Why oil specifically over gas? There has been a lot of media attention in recent weeks on the question of gas dependency. And while it is true that the dependency is very significant within the EU, it's oil where Russia earns most of its money. If the goal of imposing an embargo is to cripple the Russian economy and to sort of stop financing, funding the war, then you have to look at not just what Europe is dependent on, but also how Putin and Putin's regime, how they make their money. 40% of the Russian state budget came from energy exports before the war started. And in 2021, just to give you a number, uh, Russia earned roughly 5 billion euros with exporting coal. They earned 16.3 billion euros 
exporting gas, but they earned 71 billion euros exporting oil. So these numbers have changed since the war began because prices are rising significantly and the money European Union member states have spent on Russian gas has almost tripled between 2020 and 2022. So an oil embargo would have a very significant effect on the Russian economy. But what's important here is that there is this fear prevalent in many parts of the EU, but particularly in Germany and Austria, that if there is an oil embargo, Putin might retaliate by cutting off the gas. So Putin's using EU oil and gas to try and divide the EU. How effective is it being? I don't think it is very effective. Uh, On the contrary, I think what's happening now is actually helping to focus minds, especially in Germany, because Germany has been one of the main stumbling blocks so far to an oil embargo, let alone a gas embargo. But what's happening now is Putin is reminding us that he can, you know, he can cut us off at any point if he wants to. So this whole idea that if we, you know, are careful and protect our economy and don't do too much to anger him, then we will be fine in terms of our supplies. That doesn't hold up. You've spoken about Germany a few times. and Of course, Germany is one of the kind of superpowers of the EU and is probably the one that has been spoken about uh, when it comes to oil and gas in Russia the most compared to France and Spain or Italy. Germany's also at a crossroads as it's got a new chancellor. What has been the domestic reaction to his response to the energy crisis? People are now asking, how did we ever become so dependent on Russian gas in the first place? I mean, before the war started, 55% of our gas came from Russia. And this number has increased significantly over the last decades, but especially since 2011. And why is the infrastructure we need to get the gas here, a lot of it, owned by Russian companies, companies that are being controlled by the Kremlin. So this is, at the end of the day, it's a political scandal. But this war really shows that Germany's entire Russia policy and its entire energy policy of the last roughly two decades has been well, that's a generous interpretation, naive. You could also say delusional. <laughs> we maneuvered ourselves into a vast dependency on Russian fossil fuels, but also we disregarded, underestimated, number one, the ideological dimension of Russian foreign policy. And even more significantly, in my opinion, as a historian, the sensitivities, the history and the threat perception of smaller Eastern European countries. I'm really glad Helena made the moral argument and tied it to rail politic. I'm not sure it's something that we get enough of in in politics and history. Um, So often we have to be dispassionate. But I am a bit worried that in weeding ourselves off Russian oil and gas, that we'll be jumping from one autocrat's fire into another one's frying pan. Neil Quillam from the Middle East and North Africa programme here at Chatham House disagrees though and says that the oil and gas markets are much more complicated than we might initially think. I think it's a rather sort of simplistic way of looking at the oil markets and understanding how oil flows work. It's kind of captured like that in the popular press because I think it's easy to sort of, you know, parcel it together in in that way. But it's not just simply a case, you know, you turn off the taps to Russia and then, you you know, you look around, you say, okay, I'm going to go and get them from Saudi. Clearly, if you're going to embargo or you're no longer going to take 
oil from Russia, you're going to have to find it from elsewhere. But that doesn't simply mean, you know, you turn to another state. I mean, you go to the oil marketplace. I'm guessing this is a question that should have a podcast series in itself. But in the simplest terms, how does the oil market work? How does the EU buy oil? How does Germany buy oil? So Germany as a country doesn't buy oil. The refineries that want to purchase the oil and process the oil. So any company that is going to process crude oil that comes in or is going to use products will you know, go to the marketplace, would, can go to oil-producing countries into their markets, or it can go to companies such as Shell or BP. You, know, you go to the traders effectively, and you, know, you put in your bids. Now there are, there's the material real oil market, and then there's the, the trading market as well, you know, where you're buying your futures. So you're purchasing against price, perhaps in you know three or four months' time. But if you're, you know, if you're running a refinery, for example, in Spain, and you need a specific grade, and traditionally that would have come from Libya, I mean, you can go to a, a Libyan company, you can go to a trading company, and you put in your contract and your purchase. And then that, you know, that might materialize in two or three months' time. So just drilling down into what, no pun intended, drilling down into what an oil embargo actually means. How would an oil embargo against Russia manifest? What would it look like? I mean, it means the country, the, the companies that are purchasing oil from Russia say, okay, from this point on, we're going to buy no more oil. So if oil has already been contracted, if oil is already on the seas, then, you know, technically, even if the embargo came in today, Deliveries are still there until probably the end of the year. I mean, you can't just suddenly switch off contracts. But we have seen situations where some of the companies, you know, have been carrying Russian crude and they can't find buyers. Sometimes when it's when it's on the high seas, they're they're looking for buyers. And because of public sentiment back at home, and I'm talking about Europe specifically. The recipients or refineries are saying, you can't offload it here. And secondly, and a number of the docks, we've seen workers say, we're not going to let you discharge Russian crude here. But it effectively means that, you know, no more buying from this point onwards. So you said that to change supply, the EU would turn to a wider marketplace, not specific countries. But why, why have we seen Western leaders kind of going to Saudi Arabia and other authoritarian oil-rich nations and almost kowtowing to them in order to get good oil deals? Well, I mean, Saudi Arabia itself is what we call a swing producer. It has excess capacity, if you like, of crude in terms of production. It can cut production to help stabilize prices or help stabilize supply and demand, or it can increase so it's in a fairly unique position, sort of in global oil markets. So when prices typically, you know, trend upwards, quite often what will happen is, you know, the White House or number 10 would, would want to pick up the phone and speak to Saudi leaders or the Saudi oil minister and say, listen, guys, can you please stop producing or, or, or pumping more? We need to manage the oil price. And for the Saudis or for the major oil producers, they want stability of oil price because that allows them to plan and to develop their economies. So 
Saudi in particular plays this, this kind of careful balancing role of keeping prices as, as comfortable as possible. There's a bit of an elephant in the room with, with Saudi Arabia. You know, there's been a civil war in Yemen since 2014, and tens of thousands of civilians have been killed as a result of a war there, many by airstrikes by Saudi and the Emirati-led coalition. Is it fair to see a level of hypocrisy in the way the West is dealing with Saudi Arabia in particular, but all of the kind of Arabian Peninsula oil-rich nations at the moment? I mean, so the issue is, is quite different and distinct from the issue with Russia. Mm. So if we, if we just talk about Russia, first of all, I mean, it has, you know, territorial ambitions, clear territorial ambitions. You know, we saw that Crimea was seized in 2014. We've seen the role they've played in Donbass. And I think the, the rhetoric or the language that comes out of Moscow is that, you know, the Ukrainians are no different. Effectively, you know, this belongs to Russia historically. And that's what, you know, the Western powers are really pushing against. The war in Yemen, and you're absolutely right, you know, Yemen until Ukraine, and probably still, is suffering from the world's worst humanitarian disaster. That cannot be forgotten, of course. But the war that's being prosecuted in Yemen, you know, we need to remember is a sort of UN-led coalition war. Yes, the Saudis are at the forefront of that. Yes, the Emiratis are there. But that war has also been prosecuted under UN resolution and by a broader coalition that includes the United Kingdom, includes the US, includes some of the regional powers such as Morocco, Egypt, Jordan, and Qatar. We could argue or discuss, you know, what kicked off the war, but I don't think, you know, the Saudis or the coalition partners want to move into Yemen and to occupy Yemen and make it part of another country. So it's a very different type of struggle. Is there any real signal that the war in Ukraine has made a long-term policy shift where self-proclaimed liberal democracies become less reliant on oil from authoritarian regimes? I don't think it's about lessening, say, dependency on oil from authoritarian regimes. Certainly, it's about lessening dependency on Russian energy supplies, both gas and both oil. I was in New York last week at an energy summit, and the conversation was all about, you know, this is like 1973 when the oil embargo was first employed, and that shocked the global economy. This is a big moment like that, and it's going to push Western countries, Western states, to really start to reorient the basis of their economies and make that decisive shift away. So it serves as that. I don't think it's the authoritarian dimension so much, but this is a real push in that direction for transitioning more towards renewables. So unsurprisingly, the oil market is a lot more complicated than I could have imagined. And it's really important, though, that we understand this. However, both for moral and environmental arguments for moving away seem louder than ever. But is this really a turning point that can lead us to more renewable energy sources in Europe? Anthony Froggett seems to think so. He's from Chatham House's Environment and Society programme. Anthony, does the war provide a potential turning point in the shift to renewable energy sources in Europe? I think the key word in your question is potential, because undoubtedly what we have seen in the EU over the last decade or so is a movement towards a decarbonised electricity and energy system, uh, which means the great use of renewables. 
And prior to COP26, which is the big international climate uh, meeting in November of 2021, the EU put forward a sort of more ambitious plan, which they called Fit for 55, which saw would, would see by 2030 a, a 55% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions from 1990 levels. And for example, it proposed that by 2030, 32% of energy would come from renewables, up from 20% target. So already you would see a 50% increase in the use of renewables. And now what we have seen is basically an acceleration of, of those proposals in order to speed up the movement away from Russian fuels, both oil and gas. In the short term, is it actually feasible at all to transition to renewables to deal with this crisis? We need to be realistic about what what can be achieved. It takes a minimum of six months to build a wind power plant. So what you can do is you can probably speed up the deployment and make that happen quicker, but you can't, from start to finish, build anything new, really. And you can do energy efficiency. And energy efficiency is the one that you can do fastest if you get the public behind you. For example, within the proposals that have come out of the EU and how to rapidly reduce dependency on Ukrainian gas, they have said that in the next year, they want to encourage all households across the EU to turn down their thermostats by one degree. If everyone did it, you would reduce gas supply overnight or gas demand overnight. So there are very clear opportunities within this space, but it requires significant engagement from governments and communication from governments in order to make that happen. Why haven't we already moved to renewable energy? You know, why has it taken this long and this kind of massive earth-shattering event for this process to be so accelerated? It's a really good question. There's a number of different factors. But firstly, it is important to recognise that there has been a significant increase in the deployment of renewables in particular over the last decade, the EU has put in place very clear targets for the deployment of renewables across all sectors. The relative slowness is a combination of factors. One is, in some ways, renewables, you need to think of as being infrastructure. You need to build wind turbines, you need to build solar power. These all take time to put in place and then put into the system. And the second thing is you are changing the way, in particular within the electricity system, the way in which the power sector operates. So you're moving away from a a baseload system, which is predominantly supplied by coal stations, nuclear stations, and to some degree, gas stations, in which you can, to a large degree, predict the amount of generation that you're getting at any one time to one which is dominated by variable renewables. So they produce when the wind is blowing and the sun is shining. So you need to have a more flexible system. So it's it's not just the supply that you need to change. You need to, to change the way in which you're operating the system. And that is taking time. That is requiring new technologies, more storage systems, more flexible demand. You're needing to change the system as you are increasing the penetration of renewable energies. Are there some countries in Europe that essentially have have low renewable energy resources? So obviously, if you're in Austria, you can't really have offshore wind turbines because there's no shore to put them off. Are there some countries which might find it hard to build that infrastructure at all? Yeah, as you said, difficult for Austria to do offshore wind, but that's not to say Austria can't do more hydro, it can't do more solar PV, it can't do more onshore wind. Two things is important to think about is is renewables is a whole suite of different technologies and at different scales. So you have very large 
gigawatt-sized offshore wind fleets in the North Sea versus sort of microgrid levels, so individual households putting solar panels on their roofs. But also within the EU, it's important to, to recognise the, the networking that is taking place. And what we've seen actually since the early 1990s is a movement within the EU to have a more integrated grid. That is important in some ways if you're having a, a system that is dominated by renewable energies, so that when the wind is blowing strongly in the North Sea, you're not losing that wind because it can't be absorbed in the countries right next to it. It can then flow into other countries at great ease and without significant costs associated with it. So it is a, a harmonised power system across the whole of the EU. Are there any countries with climate sceptic leaderships that might potentially get in the way of implementing this shift to renewable energy? There are very clearly within the EU countries that at different times have elected politicians or elected governments that are less supportive of climate action. It is very clear that you can see those countries in Central Europe have for a long time been not on the vanguard of climate action. And they have always been much stronger in terms of uh, actually energy security and the desire to be off Russian energy. Mm. And also the whole issue of the speed of the transition is much more difficult for them. For example, Poland that has a power sector that is, is totally dominated by coal. The speed at which it will decarbonize is obviously much slower than, say, Germany or Netherlands that has much less coal within its system. And it's important. It's not just the reliance within the power sector per se that's important. It's all of the industry that goes with it. So you have coal power stations, you have coal miners, you have people that ship the coal, you have a whole set of jobs that are associated with a fossil fuel sector. So it's not just the electricity, it's that whole, the so-called just transition is how do you enable that to happen so that local employment is not lost and you don't get sort of deserts of jobs because power sectors have closed. So in terms of a climate emergency, could this be one of the only silver linings of this terrible war that Europe does transition into a more sustainable energy model? It absolutely is possible. And I think that is going to be the challenge. And in some ways, the test of the EU is this situation, really this shift that we need and the acceleration of the decarbonisation agenda, or is it going to be a crisis for the next year or so? And then Russian gas becomes more acceptable and, and actually will phase out maybe over a slightly longer period of time because it adds complications, etc. So obviously we are in a crisis now. It is disastrous. Hopefully the, the fighting stops. But when whenever that does, the challenge then for the EU is to maintain that momentum. The ball will be the in the EU's court in terms of will it continue to drive towards decarbonisation or will it just say, OK, well, the pressure's off, we'll slow things down. Surprisingly for me, this has been actually one of the most optimistic episodes. In fact, the only thing close to optimism of this horrible war we've had. If the one good thing is that it speeds up green policy, green energy, and a moving away from planet-destroying carbon energy, that can be a good thing. In the short term, though, it's really clear that this is actually going to be really painful. Something that's been coming up again and again in this series for me, though, is essentially how this needs to be communicated to us. Everyone is going to have to pay for this. But in the long run, it's probably going to be worth it. 
and anything that can speed up the end of the war, the better. There is another seeming black hole in the sanctions regime, and that is the world's second biggest economy, China. Next week, we'll be looking at China and whether they are willfully assisting Russia in the war or acting as impartial mediators, what they have to win and lose in the process. Thank you for listening to this episode of Undercurrents, War in Ukraine. And thank you to Helena von Bismarck, Neil Quilliam, and Anthony Froggett. If you want to learn more about what's going on in Ukraine, head to Chatham House's website, chathamhouse.org. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this issue and on what aspects you want us to cover next. You can find us on all social media at Chatham House. I've been your host, Ned Sedgwick. The producers are Anouk Mie and David Dargahi from Earshot Strategies. And thanks also to Alistair Burnett at Chatham House.